Good morning, Exchange. We're in Revelation chapter 2 today, continuing in our series um, in Revelation, not necessarily through Revelation. As we talked about last week, uh, we have uh, the Revelation is looked at sometimes, I think, and tried to be interpreted as a narrative going straight through. Uh, but Revelation really is a look at different windows. Uh, as we see multiple times in the book of Revelation, it says that John turned and he saw. It's as if the Lord is giving him a glimpse into something different. And so uh, during our series right now, we're looking through one of those windows at the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. And this week is really fun. Uh, there's no admonishment. There's none this week. There's a church that existed at this moment, probably 60 years after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he has no complaints against them, none. And still, this may be one of the most difficult letters that is brought to the church. I don't know if you know anyone like this, uh, but people who thrive under pressure. There's, we have two you know, categories of people often. You know, we can put people in binary categories, male, female, Duke, UNC, optimist, pessimist, people who think I should have mentioned NC State and not, right? Cats, dogs. There's binaries of like you put your uh, gas in your car when you have to and people who do it when you can. Typically, we have these binaries in our families, and one of those binaries is people who work well under pressure and people who work well with a well-laid plan. They're the people who uh, get an A-plus on the project that they start the night before it's due. I know some people like this. Now, they're the Nick Wallendas who walk uh, tight ropes across the Grand Canyon, the Stephen Currys who take the last minute deep three and sink it every time. They're the people and persons that do well under pressure. In a collective group as well, this church is thriving under the pressure of persecution. If you would read this portion of the letter with me, it comes from uh, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 8. He says this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but they're the synagogue of Satan. So do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So Smyrna was um, one of the most beautiful cities in Asia. Its nicknames were the ornament, crown, or flower of Asia. It was by the Aegean Sea and was known as one of the most up-to-date cities. It had a public library, a stadium, a theater for music and, and acting. It was the birthplace of the Greek po uh, poet Homer, uh, 
and it also means bitter, uh, most likely because uh, its chief export was myrrh, which is a bitter uh, herb, but also may have been a prophetic label on this community because the life that Christians lived in Smyrna was very harsh. Being a Christian wasn't made uh, that their physical lives better. It was something that they would have to fight for, be committed to, and be in community to even begin to survive. It was something that they knew they had to endure hardships for. And as we read, they currently suffer for Christ uh, and the price, uh, they currently suffer for Christ. And the most difficult thing about this letter is Christ promises them more. I don't know if you caught the words here where he says, now stand firm. I know what you're doing. You are about to suffer. Did you read those words? I know your suffering, I know your tribulation, I know your persecution, stand firm, it's gonna get worse. And that's what makes this letter really difficult, especially for us, probably Americans, who view like our, our comfort and control of our situations and circumstance. It was on very high priority level of what makes us good and what makes things good. And so when we try to align this God who says that he loves us with his words that say, hey, I see that you're suffering, but get ready because you're going to suffer even more. It's really difficult to marry those two concepts sometimes. But I love the passage that he brings us to in this. And I think a lot of the ways that he introduces himself paves the way for this passage. If we weren't familiar with this story, it could sound like something that every other king that has ever sat on a throne has said. Give your lives for the kingdom. Pay your taxes for the kingdom. These are our countless, uh, there are countless and evil, terrible kings and queens that have ruled. Some of them uh, you know, some of them, uh, their stories are legendary. One, uh, Roman Emperor Caligula, who reigned uh, in 12 AD to 41 AD, he was the uncle of Nero. It's uh, said that he constructed one, at one point, he commanded his army to construct, rather, a two-mile floating bridge from about here to the Chick-fil-A on Rogers Road just so that he could gallop his horse across it. In one moment, he, he asks his army to plunder the sea by gathering shells in their helmets. He was asking crazy things of them because he had never worked a day in his life. He didn't walk up and down the shore or cut logs for a floating bridge. He could ask of them anything because he did not know the cost. But this is not our king. And so when Jesus says, I see your suffering, I know your suffering, be prepared, there's more suffering coming. This comes from a king who knows suffering. Notice again who, how he introduces himself. It's in the introduction of the letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Write this, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life. There are two Greek verbs that emphasize what's being said here in this passage. It's not just who was dead. Uh, it, probably a better, more literal translation is this, the one who became dead. The one who was not dead, who became dead. He's saying this to the church at Smyrna from the one who knows suffering. To the church at Smyrna 
from the one who knows what it's like to be betrayed and put to death. I see you. I, I, I know your trouble. I feel your pain. And he says, I am the first and the last who became dead and now is alive again. This is a profound mystery that the first and the last could ever become dead. The one who transcends time and space and history, how does he die? Peter answers this question for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, For Christ also suffered for, uh, suffered for sins once for all time, and just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. This is why he suffered. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I think this is a massive point that we have to sink and root deep in our souls. That Christ entered willfully into suffering and sympathizes with your suffering. Let this sink deeply into your soul. That Christ entered willfully into suffering and sympathizes with your suffering. He sympathizes with I think I might say it more plainly. Jesus understands our pain. Jesus understands our pain. It's not just that he looks off from a distance and sees something difficult and says, man, I'm sorry that that's happening to them. We can often do that for our friends, for the ones that we love the most in this world. When we see them going through something, we often are able to sympathize with them in a way that says, I'm really sorry that this is happening. But Jesus goes one step further, a massive step further, a step that's over a crevasse that we could never enter. And he says, I understand it because he entered it. In every way, Jesus understands our pain. Paul says this, or the writer of Hebrews, whoever you attest this to, uh, says this in chapter four, verse 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are yet without sin. It's not just temptations that Christ understands. It's not just our temptations that Christ understands the pain of, our suffering and persecution as well, financial hardship. Jesus says this in Matthew 8, verse 20. He says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus endured a life. He willingly entered into this life of suffering financially that placed himself as a king of kings, Lord of lords. He entered into this place where he did not know where his next meal was going to come from or where he would sleep that night. And so when we enter into these financial hardships, even financial suffering, Jesus says, hey, I understand. I get it. He was betrayed and abandoned by his best friends. His own hometown thought that he was absolutely insane. He was misunderstood, mocked, and beaten. He was brutally murdered. There isn't a sliver of suffering that he does not understand. Not a sliver. 
And I think one of the most repetitive ploys of the enemy is to try to convince you that no one knows and no one understands. And in your circle, that may be true, but it's never true if you know Jesus. It's never true if you know Jesus. He knows and understands our deepest pain. And I think that's why he can say what he says next to the church of Smyrna. He says this in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander by those who say that they are Jews, but they are not, they are a synagogue of Satan. So tribulation uh, in the Greek here indicates this crushing weight. The author uses a word here. Uh, it's like the feeling of a, an elephant standing on your chest. It's used most often to describe the troubling pain of war or even childbirth. It's not light or fluffy. It's, it's not the kind of affliction that you can just move past. It's the kind of affliction that Jesus' followers in Smyrna were enduring it wasn't just internal angst about their faith, but some kind of outside pressure placed on them because they bore the name of Jesus. So in this context, the word refers not to this, this common type of suffering that can fall on all of humanity just by simply being alive, but it stems from identifying with Jesus. And so when Jesus says tribulation, he understands the crushing weight of whatever they're going through. The text is not necessarily all clear, but we do know a couple of things. They're facing financial persecution or suffering and, and slander against their name. The financial persecution could be one of many things. It could be um, that the congregation there in Smyrna endured was, it was un, unusual, it was noteworthy, it was probably severe, uh, several causes. Um, it could have been that the majority of the early Christians came from lower class, already poverty. Uh, it could be that their neediness had been caused by their giving to other needy believers. Their poverty and, and their goods were stolen by hostile neighbors that the court would not hold accountable. It was also probably very difficult for believers to flourish in a hostile and corrupt world, expected to cheat, but refused to or withheld from jobs because of their faith. We know that some of the church were facing prison or death, which would obviously be a financial burden on the church itself. What, what can be known with confidence, however, is that this financial deprivation was one of the ways that the church members suffered for their faith. No health or wealth gospel was being experienced in Smyrna for sure. And Jesus acknowledges their poverty. The commendation is interrupted by this parenthetical correction. But you're rich. He says, I, I, see, I see your tribulation. I know of your poverty, but you are rich. This aside is introduced with this strong adversative, but it provides this powerful correction to the apparent poverty and the Christians in Smyrna. And I don't think this is our typical way of dealing with pain or something uncomfortable that we don't know what to say. Typically, it's things like this. Someone might be sharing something with us and we say, we don't know what to say. So we say, well, at least, 
Well, on the bright side, or, or maybe even worse, they're telling us this story of their suffering, and we try to identify it, and so we bring up a story of our suffering. Right? Maybe that's one-upped from their suffering. And I don't think that this is what Jesus is attempting to do. He knows their persecution. He acknowledges it, but before he allows them to embrace the victim mentality, he gives them the truth that he wants them to live under. You're rich. I, I get it. I, I lived nights where I didn't know where I was going to sleep. I, I, I lived days where I didn't know what I was going to eat. I see your poverty. I get it. Church of Smyrna, you got to know you're rich. Now, I think this is both true in the spiritual sense and the physical. Ephesians chapter 1, which Ed uh, spoke about. A second ago, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. And he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he favored us in his beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according, I love this, to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So in the spiritual sense, Paul reminds the church here that we are rich in grace. It's as if we have this, this debit card that we go to the ATM of grace and mercy that never runs out. It never runs out. It never runs out. But also Jesus spoke of this idea where we're not just spiritually rich, but there is also a very physical and real reward waiting for those who are faithful in heaven. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, don't store up for your treasure, yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this principle that Jesus is speaking here, and I think reminding the church of Smyrna of, he says, look, yes, in, in, in the worldly sense that you are poverty stricken, you're poverty stricken by not having a lot of the things that moth and rust destroys, that thieves can steal, but you are rich in the treasures in heaven waiting for you. I think this is a passage that we typically just, I don't know if we know what to do with necessarily. We, I kind of want to say, like, what are those treasures? What do they look like? I mean, what am I going to do with them? Is there a currency? I don't know all of the answers to that, but I do know Jesus' words are this. There's this way that we live our life here on earth that stores up for us treasures in heaven. And I believe in a way Jesus is speaking this truth to this church at Smyrna. Listen, guys, you, yes, you, 
The poverty is, is real. It's hard. But your treasures in heaven continue to accumulate. It's that life that you live for, not this life. In addition to their poverty, they're enduring slander in a way that's extremely painful. I think sometimes slander isn't painful because what's being said is so ridiculous that it can't be believed, or maybe it's being said to someone who wouldn't even give you the, a second thought. But slander becomes painful when it's said and believed by people you love. It's painful when it causes you misfortune, added unnecessary suffering. And slander can be, can be very painful. The Romans had granted at the time an exception uh, for the required participation in the Roman imperial cult uh, to the Jews. In other words, the Jews did not have to take part in Roman idolatry. So they did not have to necessarily uh, come in and attest to certain things or observe certain things or do certain things uh, that would obviously go against Scripture. Everyone else was required to participate. So obviously Christians would not want to participate with the Romans in their idolatry, uh, their festivals, their celebrations, but the Jewish slander here in view probably has something to do with the Jews denouncing the Christians as Christ followers and so removing themselves from them. So, so what's happening is Rome has this system which you must abide by. Because the Jewish nation was very powerful and strong, we see this in the crucifixion even of Jesus, where Pilate did not want to disrupt or anger the Jews. He didn't want to crucify Jesus, but he did not want to create an uproar with the Jews. And in a like way, in, in a very similar way, Rome had created this mandatory system of rituals and cults and celebrations. And because they knew the Jewish law, the system and all the things, they granted those who were Jewish an exception to this thing. Well, the Jews, the high priests, the religious rulers were going back to the Christians and they were pointing to them to Rome and saying they are not of the Jewish nation. And so it was creating for them obvious hardship. So the Jewish slander had something to denounce the Christians to Rome. And we get this glimpse of something like this in Acts 18 as well. As long as Christianity was under the Jewish umbrella, Christians were exempt from required participation in the growing Roman cult. And if the Jews had begun denouncing Christians to the Romans, arguing that they were not Jews at all, Christians who refused to participate in Roman idolatry could face retribution, more persecution, additional tribulation. But like Jesus' redirection of poverty and riches, he gives another perspective here too. And he says this, Jesus' words, don't give much weight to them. They're tools of Satan. Don't, don't give much weight to what's being said. They're tools of Satan. Their verbal assassins serve the devil, he says. And when their souls are discouraged to a new and heartbreaking level, Jesus speaks. He sets the record straight. And when they believe that they know best, when they have the moral high ground and are verbally attacking you, Jesus says, don't worry about them. Don't worry about what they're saying. They're literally tools of the enemy. They're tools of Satan. I think this should be an important truth and warning to us. 
Those who slander are not misunderstood, hurt, or just going through a difficult season. Those who slander are tools of Satan. The scripture speaks really clearly about this and puts slander in this category of, of things that the Lord hates in a way that makes me pause. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says this, there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. I want you to pause on that. This is the category of things we're talking about. A heart that derives, uh, devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Another version says, and those who slander. Uh, Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says it this way, a perverse person spreads strife, and a slanderer separates close friends. And then the Lord speaks in Psalm 101. It says this, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. I, I don't know how to list more passages, although there are many, that would cause us to pause and to say, man, I don't want to be guilty of this. I don't want to be guilty of listening to this. I don't want to be guilty of participating in this. And also, I'm not going to give weight to those who do. When they slander, or when I hear of slander against me, I just say, Lord, you've already spoken on this. You, you have the last word. You set the record straight. I think what the Lord is doing in multiple ways when he says this, I see your poverty, but you're rich. And he says, I, I hear the slander. They're tools of the enemy. What he's doing is he's redirecting and reshaping our perspective on what he says is true. And I think this is a massive point that we have to understand. If the church is going to prevail against the culture, the enemy, I think we have to understand and learn how to do this. To endure the suffering of this world, we must adopt an eternal perspective. To endure the suffering of this world, we have to adopt, deeply root into our souls, an eternal perspective. It doesn't mean that Monday isn't painful. It doesn't mean our circumstance doesn't matter. It just means that we look through a different lens to see those things. It means we see our suffering and criticism, circumstances, hardships through a different lens. seems like they are enduring quite a bit and attempt to make things better. We could say, uh, you know, the things. They could always be worse. But Jesus isn't trying to make things better for them. He's trying to make them more holy. 
Things, things are not going to get easier. They could be worse, and they will get worse, he said. Notice this in verse 10. So he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you have tribulation for 10 days. That 10 days is actual uh, in a reference, if you remember, to Daniel uh, and his friends uh, who would be named later, you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do not want to eat of the king's food that was sacrificed to idols. And they asked for a 10-day window of time where they could eat only the other things and to see and to test them whether they would grow stronger or grow weaker. So this is a reference to that. Probably not a literal 10 days. But he says this, you're going to suffer tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So the church of Smyrna is literally headed directly into the eye of the storm. And maybe we would expect Jesus to say, don't worry, the enemy has plans of suffering, of hardship, of tribulation, even more than what you're going through now. I've stopped it. I won't allow it. We maybe expect him to say, I see your tribulation. I see your suffering. I see your persecution. It's over. We probably don't expect him to say, hold on, it's about to get worse. I think suffering for the church and for those who follow Christ should not surprise us. Actually, Scripture promises it to us. And so if we're surprised by suffering, it really indicates that that we have a, a little bit of a scriptural illiteracy that we haven't prepared ourselves for this. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says this. Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated because of my name, but, the, but is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised when you, when you encounter suffering, as if you're thinking, where did this come from? I think we have this question, why would God allow suffering? We look at circumstances and can't understand what good is possibly going to come out of it. And so what we're saying is that unless our fragile and broken minds uh, can perceive what the creator of the world might be doing in this and through this, then it's useless and meant to destroy us. Right, what we say is, if I can't see, determine, or understand the good that can come out of this suffering, then it's useless and meant to destroy me. We, we filter it through our broken minds, our limited perspective. Or we might think that we've done something run, wrong and God doesn't love us. What I love about this passage is Christ's reminder to us that he suffered. God's only son. 
So we cannot say that we suffer because God doesn't love us. We might not know why we suffer, but we know we, why we don't. It's not because he doesn't love us. And he says that we should expect it. He says he doesn't always shield it from us. I think in part, generally, the Lord knows that there is something in us that can only be accomplished through suffering. There has to be a death before there's new life. And perhaps the persisting pressure caused by the suffering that you are enduring is causing a death in you that is necessary to bring new life to something else that he wants to accomplish. Let me say that again. Perhaps the persisting pressure caused by the suffering that you are enduring right now is causing a death in you that's necessary to bring new life to something else that he wants to accomplish in you. This is why James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters. Count it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let it have its perfect result, that you become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And Jesus tells the church, the enemy is going to throw some of you into prison to test you. So there's different variations of that, of, of the testing. There's some punctuation that makes it, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. And it might read um, like this, almost a new thought, so that you will be tested, you will have tribulation for 10 days. So it's, it's, it's almost a little bit ambiguous as whether Satan is testing or God is doing the testing. Regardless, he says, I have the final say. The enemy can't say anything about you that's true against what I've already said about you. Your future's secure. Your identity is complete. I have not or will not abandon you. And whether the enemy has this or God is moving in this in some way, he says, I won't waste it. We know this is a promise from Scripture that all things work together for good according to his plans and purpose. I think sometimes we think maybe all things will work together for my good. Sometimes we think all things will work together for my good right now. How's that true if I'm currently suffering, if I'm currently persecuted, if I'm currently heavy laden with burdens? But it's not our job to determine what's good. Even we come to, to Jesus like the man, rich young ruler, who says, good teacher. Jesus stops him and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to have to define good. Only one's good, and that's the Father. You remember the story? What Jesus is saying is, I mean, listen, one, you don't even know what good is. 
you're incapable of recognizing. Two, who do you say that I am? Call me good teacher. But I'm asking you, do you trust me? And I think in the same way, Jesus is saying, look, when circumstances don't look good, will you trust who I am? When you can't navigate and correct the course of your circumstances, will you allow me to? And Jesus gives this promise at the end. He says this, The one who has an ear, let him hear. And the Spirit says to the churches, The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus again is correcting their perspective. This life is not the end. This life is not the end. And when we endure, when we place our faith and our trust in our lives in the hand of Jesus, He says and promises there's a new life waiting for us. I love the story um, of the death of or the final days of one of my favorite pastors and theologians. A man named John Stott uh, was the pastor of All Souls Langham uh, Place in London. Uh, Just honestly like what some would call a, a peerless preacher. Theologian, evangelist, author, global leader, friend to many. And one, um, one of his friends writes this. He says, I knew him for many decades, but I'll never forget my last uh, visit to his bedside just a couple of weeks before he died. He was frail, very weak, unable to say very much at all. But I asked him before I left, how would you like me to pray? And this very faithful theologian and pastor said, lying weakly on his back, barely able to speak, groaned and whispered in a hoarse voice, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my final breath. In my most calloused heart, I think, John, I don't see very many ways that you can be unfaithful at the moment. You don't have very many opportunities laid in front of you. But he knew better. He knew the thoughts and temptations, even for his thoughts to wean away from Jesus to look back at his life and filter it through suffering and persecution or to look back at his life and filter it through the goodness of Jesus. What about the the thing that I love about this passage is everything that Jesus asks us to do, he introduces it with, I've already done it. And so when he says this, be faithful until the end, his introduction reminds us because I was faithful to the end. You can endure because I endured. Jesus gives us the strength to finish the race and run the course in faith. Today we get this opportunity to celebrate, to observe, to worship through the Lord's table. 
And this is something that the church has done historically since the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus gave his instructions to his disciples, and he says, when you gather, when you do this, do this in my name. Uh, When you drink the wine, when you eat the bread, uh, do it in remembrance of me. And I think the passage today leads us to a place where when we do this, it gives us strength and fuels our week to do what he has asked us to do, to endure. Why? Because I remember that you endured. To look at suffering and persecution differently. Why? Because you suffered for my sake. To long for the hope and the reward of heaven. Why? Because you have released us from all of our sins. The Lord's table reminds us and ushers us into this worshipful moment where if you feel overwhelmed by your circumstance, by your burden, by your struggle, by your tribulation, by your season, you can find strength at the table. How is it? How is it that the king of the universe would lay a table where? in the presence of our enemies and invite us to sit down. Do you get this picture? The enemies that bring on persecution, the enemies that slander, the enemies that that take our things and our possessions and make this life terribly difficult. Scripture says that he sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. In the presence of our enemies, I want you to get this picture. A shepherd who lays his sheep down as the wolves circle. And that shepherd completely unconcerned. He's unconcerned because the sheep are with him. So the table that's set before us in the presence of our enemies sets the record straight. It gives us hope. It brings us peace that through the cross of Christ, he has the last word. Would you pray with me?